Well, this is how naive I was when I got involved in politics. I thought, well, I guess I'll get involved, even though surely that no elected official is going to rule against small business because that's how everybody gets their jobs. 92% of jobs in San Antonio are small business jobs. So, of course, they're all going to protect small business. Well, my eyes were opened and I felt like I didn't know anything about anything. Louis Barrios and his sister Diana Barrios Trevino own and operate a family business that was started by their mother. Today, their enterprise includes Los Barrios Restaurant on Blanco Road, La Hacienda de los Barrios on Redland Road, north of 1604, Violas Ventanas on Westover Hills Boulevard, La Hacienda Scenic Loop on Bernie Stage Road, and they also operate Los Barrios Catering, and they run Viola's Huge Heart Foundation. Louis, first of all, thank you for joining us on the podcast. This story and your family begin with humble roots. Tell me how it got started. Well, in 1972, my mother begged my father, who was in Spanish radio, Spanish TV, and Spanish newspaper, to buy her a little Mexican restaurant. And because my dad adored my mother so much, he bought it for her. She was a great cook and very entrepreneurial and had lots of little micro businesses. Well, this was 1972, La Casadora on West Avenue. I had about eight tables. We didn't have a phone, just a pay phone that allowed incoming calls. We didn't have a dumpster, just a trash can. We didn't have an ice machine. It was very humble. The, the dish room, it didn't include any kind of sophisticated chemical type cleaning. You had to boil the water. And so my sister, Diana, at nine years old, was a part-time server whenever she was there after school, being the little cute one. I was the dishwasher and the ice bringer from across the street. At okay, Texas okay wait a minute. If she was the cute one, then what did that make you? The guy in the back washing dishes, <laughs> sweating to death. <laughs> and um, I was the one who got to tear up the boxes and put it in the plastic bag. So I had three different jobs, washing dishes, boiling water, getting the ice, and cutting up the boxes, the trash guy. So if she was nine, how old were you then? I was 12. Okay. So every day after school, Deanna would call and cry until somebody would bring her to the restaurant, my father or my mother. And then um, if the dishwasher didn't show up, then I would cry because I had to go and wash dishes. <laughs> so I would be washing dishes in the back and Deanna would show up with a dollar bill saying, look what I got. I said, what'd you get that for? She goes, I took a cup of coffee. I said, you took a cup of coffee five feet and you got a dollar? said, yes. Or she'd come back and show me seven or eight dimes. Look what I got. I said, you got eight dimes for what? Well, I was coloring in my color book and a customer came up, said, if you sign your name and give that to me, I will give you all these dimes. And it was at that point that I really hated my life. <laughs> <laughs> Sibling riv rivalries can be so tough. <laughs> so how long did you have that restaurant? We had it from 72 to 78, and our father was killed in a traffic accident in September 1st, Labor Day of 1975. My mother was then cheated in two ventures, one that my dad had gotten into and one that she got into another restaurant. And uh, she sold that restaurant in 78, hoping to have a budding career in real estate, but she couldn't pass the test because the class was in Spanish. The test was administered in English, and only one person in the whole class passed the test, and it wasn't my mom. Wow. So she realized that the restaurant industry was the only way she was going to be able to provide for us. So she took $3,000 and a partner that was cheated out of $5,000. She was cheated out of $10,000. And they started Los Barrios in 
August of 1979 with $3,000 downtown in an old boot garage. Correct me if I'm wrong, but prior to that, was she starting to sell in a little cart? Well, no, it was a boat garage. Okay. And prior to Los Barrios being at 1033 Avenue being Jones, they used to repair boat motors in there. It literally had a garage door, a metal door, no windows, and four walls. Wow. When did that transfer to Los Barrios on Blanco being your mainstay? Well, the six-month lease expired, and we were really busy at breakfast and lunch, not very much dinner traffic, and the landlord tripled the rent. My mom paid it for two months, and then she bought the Dairy Queen in April of 1980, and we moved over there. And it was that eight-month period that my mother was able to realize that she could work with Mr. Rodriguez as a partner and that they could have a venture together that was going to have success. And for those people who who have not been there, there's a, a little piece of the Dairy Queen that you can still see. You have the facade that still don't, doesn't it have the address from what was the outside front facing street facing wall. We kept the door jam, the original door jam, and it says 4223 above it. And it's got the Dairy Queen wall surrounding the innermost part of the restaurant of Los Barrios. And then you all added that extra space and then added the patio. We've added four times and then we've bought in four houses and made parking lots out of them. Wow. So then when did La Hacienda begin? Your well, second restaurant. Well, I had I got married and had three children. Diana got married, had three children. My older sister, Teresa, was a podiatrist along with her husband. And she had two children. And I did the math. I was not going to be able to provide for my family and Diana's family out of that restaurant. So I sold my house for the second time. The first time I sold my house, I expanded Los Barrios. Now the second time I sold my house, moved into my mom's house, and um, used that seed money to open up La Hacienda. And then tell me about your mother, because this is, I mean, for people who know you and Diana and your activity with the restaurant and all your charitable giving and all of the things you do civically here for our community, we all know what happened to your mother, but I think it's an important part of the story for people who don't know you and don't know your mother or didn't know your mother as to what happened to her in the timeline of the progression of the business. Well, um, my mother gets cheated in those two ventures. She starts Los Bites with $3,000. She works seven days a week from early morning till 11.30 p.m. for 30 years. At the time, we used to only close two days a year, Christmas and Thanksgiving. She made little to no pay, just took enough money out to live off of. She built a business. Many people say that when my dad died, my mother, she was 44. She didn't marry another man. She married a restaurant, and that's who provided for us. And so my mom was there seven days a week, like you said, until she was murdered. And... um she sacrificed her life so that me and my sisters could have a life. And uh, I think her, her, her business um, philosophy was to love us selflessly, unconditionally, and sacrificially. She sacrificed her life so that we could have a life. And we were all college educated. My sister's a podiatrist. She went to medical school. And um, she helped get us on our way. And when you say she sacrificed her life, you're, you're talking about how she married that restaurant and she worked hard and she built it up to provide all of you with something uh, to build your families upon. That's exactly right. She worked seven days a week till 11.30 p.m. or later for 30 years. Now, you used the word selfless a minute ago. And the one thing I remember about your mother is she also 
did what she could for the poor, and particularly for the people of her hometown? Well, she helped more than just the people of her hometown. We have spiral notebooks filled with uncollateralized interest-free loans that she made to family, friends, customers, employees, most of them not fully repaid. And she would help people all the time. And this was when my dad was alive and after my dad was gone. And when my dad died, we not only lost our father at age 46, he was 46, but we also lost 95% of our income. So we didn't have a lot. And my mom still would help so many people. And I used to tell her, mom, we help so many people, but we don't have a lot. She would say, well, we have enough, son, and they're desperate. And so my mother had a heart of giving. She was a very merciful woman. And then uh, when we used to take our few vacations to Bustamante, our hometown, and we would sleep at the floor of one of my cousin's houses or my aunt's houses or in my grandfather's house, if none of the relatives were using it, she would make us breakfast. We'd go visit family and friends, and then she'd come back. We'd make, she'd make us lunch. And then we would just go to the poor parts of Bustamante. They weren't dangerous. They were just very poor. And my mom would just start knocking on doors and say, Buenas tardes, in her beautiful voice, her beautiful cadence. And they would say, yes, ma'am, how can we help you? And she'd say, no, how can I help you? I'm Viola Botello de Barrios. I'm Alfredo Botello's daughter. And uh, do you need help with anything? And we would walk into houses, one in particular. There was four walls and no roof. And my mother said, what happened to your roof? Well, when Hurricane Gilbert or Hugo or one of the hurricanes passed by, it took our Palapas roof. So my mom would go and find a laborer and contract that person to buy the corrugated metal and come put it on their house, pay half down. And six months later, we'd come back and check their work and my mother would pay the balance. She'd also take reading glasses that were left at Los Barrios that were left there for over a year. And she would take them and give them away to these very poor Women, not that they knew how to read or would use them to read, but they would use them to be able to thread their needles when they sewed. And uh, she would have my sisters go help her buy all the um, the notebooks at the end of the school year that were on sale for 25 cents a piece and the boxes of crayons. And come the fall, she would go give them some to the poor people. Some she would give inventory to a cousin, buy them a bicycle, a tire pump, an inventory. And she would say, okay. Saturday and Sunday, you go down to the plaza, you sell this, you make your money, you use that to buy more inventory, and you start a business. So my mother would start people on their entrepreneurial journey, and then she would help those that really needed help. Now, Bustamante is in Mexico, but whereabouts is it located? It's about an hour northwest of Monterrey. And then you all continued this tradition for Bustamante. Well, we don't go as often as my mom did. And so um, we don't take many vacations. So it's. Uh, well, considering your work ethic, if for those that know you, we all know how strong of a work ethic you and Deanna have, and you value the little time off that you do have. But you also uh, give in other ways. One of the things that I've always appreciated having three kids who have all played sports is that when you go to some restaurants, um, they come and tell you after you're the athletic event is over and you all go celebrate at a restaurant. Other restaurants will say, hey, we close at nine or we close at 10. And you and your sister come over and say, we're closed when you all are done eating. And so it's, it's just an example of the above and beyond that you two do. Well, that was my mother's wishes. So we used to close the restaurant at 10 p.m. And she would say, if a table gets there at 9.59, you wait there until they leave. If that's 11.30 or midnight and so... When somebody would just 
come in as we were locking the door, I would think to myself, "Uh uh-oh, I'm here for another hour and a half. (laughs) So you had started La Hacienda up on Redland Road. And then when did violas come into the picture? Violas will be 10 years old in May. So May the 18th of 13, we opened up. And then the last piece of the puzzle, as far as the four restaurants comes, is La Hacienda Scenic Loop, which is out there for people who may not have been there. It's it's what was once called the Scenic Loop Cafe. Yes. And you all converted it. And I, I want to come back to the pandemic in a minute, because one of the unique things about your restaurants is, is you have patios at all four restaurants. Yes, that's right. La Hacienda Scenic Loop opened up October the 1st of 2017. Then you have a catering company. Yes. And then you have the foundation that's named after your mother, Villa's Huge Heart Foundation, which you all give scholarship money to first generation students, uh, college students. Well, they have to have great needs. So we cannot directly give to any student. We can give to another charity, another nonprofit, 501c3. So we raise the money. Then we reach out to an incarnate word, an Antonian college prep, uh, St. Anthony's, a um, Holy Cross, a St. Gerard's, and then they select a student for us. Usually they're women. We've only had one, well, mostly girls, but we've only had one boy, but we call them little violas and we, we pour a resource into them and the school pours love into them and direction and hopefully they grow up to be big violas. And so four restaurants, a catering company and a foundation. So I guess my question to you is what do you do in your spare time? Well, it's funny you should ask because when we opened up, well, when we got married, we got pregnant three months later. We had Lindsay nine months after that. So for the next 10 years, I didn't watch one baseball game, one football game, one basketball game, one boxing match. I didn't play golf. And um, Viola's was about to open up and I started watching Johnny Manziel at Texas A&M. And my wife said, since when do you like football? I said, well, I've always liked football, but for the last 10 years, my commitment was to the family. So that meant I had to work and I had to pour into the family the time I had off and I didn't have time for anything else. So I didn't, I didn't have any extracurriculars for so, those 10 years. like your mother, you were married to the restaurant. That's exactly right. We married the restaurant <laughs> yes, as well. So tell me about your workforce. Um, how many total employees do you have? Right now, about 300. And tell me about how you hire. Um, We're experiencing in a post-pandemic world uh, difficulty hiring people. You often talk about the restaurant industry is is where often the first job for 16 to 24-year-olds. That's correct. Well, when people, people don't quit companies, they quit managers. And then they also are follow managers. So... Whenever we have a manager that's problematic, uh, they start basically chasing off our good employees and then they bring the morale down to the rest of the employees. So if we need to move them to a different location or a different position or if they leave us and then we promote somebody else, well, once their friends hear that they are now managers and people want to come work for them, that attracts. That's a that's a way that we recruit without even trying to recruit people like to work for other people. And as much as employees like working for me and my sister, we may have a problematic manager that will chase people off. And so that's how recruitment really happens is people like working with other people. And so the restaurant industry is the way, or, or they'll have a relative. They'll say, Oh, you're now the manager at La Hacienda scenic loop. 
well, I'm your nephew and I want to come bust tables or I want to, one of our customers says, oh, I want to work for your daughter, Lindsay. So I want to be a hostess. And so they just attract people, attract people, and also people retract people. And so you refer to your employees in a certain way, because uh, full disclosure, my oldest son, Christian, uh, worked for you and he worked with your daughter, Lindsay. Yes. Um, and but tell me how you refer to your employees. Well, they're my work family and they're my work children. And so I always tell the parents that at home, they're your children. But when they're here, they belong to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, he feels like he, he learned a lot in the very short time that he was with you more than he learned working elsewhere. So thank you for that. You sort of came to mind as the inspiration when I was deciding to come up with this podcast. And this podcast is about the intersection of business, public policy, and politics. And first of all, I want to talk about how you and Diana differentiate your roles um, and why you're here. And she's not here, but I'm going to get her on this podcast anyway. But you have often focused on the political and the advocacy side when it comes time to go to Austin or Washington to advocate on behalf of the industry. I, I t- Diana's been on Good Morning America with Emerald, Good Morning America on Sam Champion, the Today Show in New York twice, the Food Network a thousand times, the Travel Golf Channel, NPR, she cooked for the president out of the White House kitchen, on and on and on. We have two different playgrounds. Her playground is where you play hide and go seek and jacks and all the fun stuff. And I will visit her and her playground from time to time. But the playground where I play in, it's the fist fight, the knife fight and the occasional <laughs> gunfight, which is, you know, political action. Yeah. And uh, she doesn't come to my playground. She doesn't want to come to my playground. She's happy doing jumping jacks and playing hide and seek. She doesn't need shoulder pads and a helmet like no, you do. She does not. She's very happy where she's at. So uh, again, I want to go back to, uh, because your business intersects with local government, state government, federal government. So I want to start first, and we're going to come back and talk about the pandemic and, and how that impacted your business. But I want to talk about the local government first. And there are times when the government can be helpful, and there are times where the government can be obstructive. And one time in particular that comes to my mind was when they were repaving Blanco Road. And I want you to talk about what happened to your restaurant during that time period. Okay, so a small business navigates a minefield of public policy from three layers of government, local, state, and federal. And then there's all other types of disruption that we have to kind of navigate around in the marketplace. And that may be road construction, embezzlement, weather, technology, social media, things of that nature. And so you're talking about the six and a half years of road construction in front of Los Barrios, which was followed by three years of road construction in front of La Hacienda that ended in 2019, the year before the pandemic hit. So what happened at the um, the Los Barrios road construction project, that was part of the 2012 bond election and Mayor Hardberger kicked off his campaign right in front of Los Barrios, actually in our parking lot. And I was the first speaker that introduced him because he said that if he was reelected to a second term and the bond election, that was a $550 million bond election didn't pass, then he wouldn't have anything to build with. And if the bond election passed, but he lost the election, well, then the next mayor would have something to build with. So he thought I will use my campaign dollars 
to pass this bond election. And um, I'm going to kick it off there at Los Barrios because Blanco Road is going to be one of the first projects that we're going to be working on. And so it ended up being a seven-year road construction project. The difficult part of that project is they first started working on the east side of the street. Then they came back and did the west side of the street. The problem was when they did the west side of the street, they made it one way going south to north. So if you were coming from 410, you couldn't go down Blanco Road to get to Los Bars. They turned you off on, on Jackson Keller. But if you were going northbound, you could go straight up. And so that was really detrimental to the Los Barrios business. Just the stretch in front of your restaurant or on the side of the restaurant, on the Blanco side, Mm -hmm. you had barricades and cones set up for how long right in front of your restaurant? Well, it was a multi-phase. So they they did them sections at a time. So eventually it got in front of us and that, who knows how long that was, maybe nine months to a year, but it was, it was pretty long. And then they started uh, side streets, which also restricted, you know, access to your restaurant. They did Blanco Road at the same time. They did Bassey, San Pedro, and West Avenue, the four major ways to get to Los Barrios. In addition to that, I recall seeing a local TV news story where they were interviewing then councilman Roberto Trevino, and they were talking about all the difficulties that the businesses were experiencing And there was a cleaners that actually went out of business because customers couldn't get to their location and they ran out of customers and they had to shut their doors. When they interviewed Councilman Trevino, his reaction was, well, we now that the road construction is done, we invite them to come back. But there was a problem with that. They didn't move, so they couldn't come back. Uh, They went out of business. And this is a a current struggle that we're beginning to see on the St. Mary's strip. We're seeing it all over town and on Broadway and on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And just for months after months after months of road construction without outreach to the business community to see how can we limit any damage we may cause your business? How can we make sure that your customers still have a way to access your business? Or you're referring to jeans cleaners and uh, like the restaurant industry, of restaurants nationwide are less than 50 employees. And so most small businesses die in anonymity, the same as most poor older people die in anonymity. The neighbors may know, the family may know, the hospice nurse may know, but most people can't afford an obituary, so they just pass on and nobody really knows. And that's what happens with these small businesses like Jeans Cleaners. They die in anonymity And because the elected officials don't know it, somebody's got to bring it up to them so they can understand that 90% of restaurants are like when my mother first started her first restaurant. Like I said, I had five employees, the second had seven, and Los Barrios started with two employees. So when restaurants like that, micro business like that go bankrupt, they die in anonymity. So road construction was one intersection that your business had to deal with, with the city of San Antonio. A second intersection with the city came during the pandemic when the city shut down restaurants. Well, that's correct. And, and then so did the governor because um, Nelson Wolf was trying to keep us open at the county uh, that was not in the city. It was in the ETJ, which is the La Hacienda Scenic Loop. And when Mayor Nuremberg closed us down, he kept us open until Governor Abbott came in and finally closed us. So then at the state level, you were then impacted 
the, in the opposite way when the governor reopened the state. Yes, because what happened was they, they opened us up incrementally. So it was a 25% occupancy, 50% occupancy, 75% occupancy, 50% occupancy, and 100% occupancy. Now, when he went to 100% occupancy, that helped him because he was able to say the state of Texas is open. But it hurt us. If he would have done it incrementally to 75% and then 100%, we could have had more of accounting advantages but when he opened us up to 100%, then we lost our advantage with our financials in, in the tax situation. It would have been much more merciful of him to do it incrementally all the way to 100%. And we could have been able to take advantage of some of these accounting codes that would have benefited us. But once again, he was trying to let the signal out there that, that Texas is open for business. So that was good, but it could have been done a little bit better. I want to take you back to a conversation that you and I had. I don't know if you remember this conversation, but it was before the pandemic hit. You were questioning a decision that you and your sister had made to invest a lot of money into renovating the deck in the patio area at La Hacienda on Redland Road. I think you put down new new wood, you put in new lighting, um, you all have some fans in the trees, but you were lamenting the fact that you had spent so much money. Then when the pandemic hit, correct me if I'm wrong, all those patios and decks that you have at your restaurants became your saving grace. Well, you were there when, when the patio, it's a 4,200 square foot patio plus a 3,000 square foot flagstone, so a 7,200 square foot patio. And you came to visit us, you and Christina, your wife, and um, the patio was just packed. And I said, Eddie, follow me inside. (laughs) And I believe there was one table inside. One or two tables, yeah. Right. So we started rebuilding that patio January 7th of 2020. And we tore it all apart and put in 250 posts to stabilize the foundation, which it didn't have that stability. And that's why it started giving way on us, but now we can build literally a two-story house on that foundation. So uh, what is the square footage of the patio and the flagstone compared to the interior restaurant? The interior is about 2,800 square feet. And the flagstone is 4,200 square feet and the flagstone is 3,000 square feet. So it's triple outside than inside. And you talked about the things and the challenges that face small businesses. And one of them is adaptation. And so when the pandemic hit, what was the first meeting like where you all came together to figure out what do we do now? Well, we started in prayer because there was no, this was bigger than us. The, the scripture says, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord with all your heart. And so we said, Lord, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how long it's going to last, but listen, you're in charge anyway. So thank you that you're ordering our steps. So we started there. And yes, it ended up being an advantage having these big patios. What it was a disadvantage from the standpoint of drive-throughs or curbside because Biola's Ventanas and La Hacienda, the big patio restaurants, they don't set themselves up for curbside very well. So we didn't have a lot of curbside there. We had more curbside at Los Barrios and La Hacienda Scenic Loop because it just it was just easier to do them there than it was at the the two big patio restaurants. So 
There was pluses and minuses for both concepts. So we've talked about the local government. We've talked about the state government. Now uh, we're at the federal government level. Um, this is, uh, in particular, the top issue that comes to my mind is is immigration. And this is something, this is an issue that you and I have actually worked on together. We've talked about, we've advocated in uh, with members of Congress. And I did a TED Talk um, 11 years ago. And on my way over here to the studio, someone said, hey, I just saw your TED Talk. And I said, you know what's sad? Everything I said there is still relevant because nothing has changed Mm -hmm. on this topic. But talk about the inability to get immigration reform and how does that impact your workforce? What I like to tell people is that the restaurant industry is the second largest private employer in the country. We're the largest employer of minorities and the largest employer of 16 to 24 year olds. So those minorities are in our kitchen. So without that economic engine in the kitchen, then we are not, no longer the largest employer of 16 to 24 year olds, which is the first, second, and third grade level of the workforce. There's also the multiplier effect for every million dollars that you generate in a restaurant, you create another job outside of it. So what are other jobs that Americans love to have that um, support the restaurant industry? Well, my, my accountant, my insurance man, my attorney, the architect that helps us, the people that sell us uh, our groceries, the people that sell us our software, our computer. Those are all jobs Americans want. So the immigrant labor force that's mostly in our kitchen, they don't take American jobs. They create the jobs Americans want, which is the hostess job, the busboy job, the server job, the manager job, along with the multiplier effect. I try to explain that to people. Another thing I try to explain to them is immigration is good. People have been immigrating since biblical times when you see that the children of Israel went to the land of Goshen because they were having a famine in Canaan. And so immigration has always happened, will always happen. People go to where there's commerce, where there's food. And so I ask people, would you rather people try to get to the United States because the commerce is here? Or would you rather your children have to go to other countries because the commerce is there? So once we come to the the agreement that it's better that they're coming here because people are going to be moving somewhere and it's better that they are coming here and we get to keep our children here working in the fields that they're chosen fields of interest. Then at that point we have to figure out how to get this, these immigrants that are coming over here and put them into the economy so that they can create more jobs. You and I would be able to solve this problem because, you know, we're, we come from business backgrounds and that's what you do in a business when you own your own business. You're solving problems all every day, hundreds of times a day. Um, I've actually had a member of Congress tell me, yes, I know that's a great idea, Eddie, but um, that's, that's a real solution. I need a political solution. <laughs> well, that's right. It's a wedge issue and both D's and R's use it to raise money and to get people in the emotional state, the emotional space, instead of in the factual space. I think it was Abraham Lincoln said that if you give the people the accurate information, they'll all get to a a good solution. But that gets hazied up through fake news, social media, and the different interest groups that are opposed to it and use it to raise money. What advice would you give to another entrepreneur who may be younger than you or in the early stages of launching their own business? What advice would you give them about engaging on issues before the local government, the state government, the federal government? Or what advice would you give them uh, regarding politics and getting involved in campaigns? 
Well, this is how naive I was when I got involved in politics. I thought, well, I guess I'll get involved, even though surely that no elected official is going to rule against small business because that's how everybody gets their jobs. 92% of jobs in San Antonio are small business jobs. So, of course, they're all going to protect small business. Well, my eyes were opened and I felt like I didn't know anything about anything. And initially, I was very strong on the Republican side going to those fundraisers. But I quickly realized that the Republicans have to work with the Democrats. And so eventually I started splitting my time uh, going to fundraisers for both Republicans and Democrats because we're in a Democratic county. And there's a lot of pro-business Democrats here that can help you, even though some of them are against your measure. There's a lot of them that are. And so I quickly realized that, hey, listen, I don't have to stay on the Republican side. I can go on both sides and uh, it can affect change that will help all of us. There's a saying in Mexico, they ask a Mexican businessman who the next president of Mexico is going to be. He says, I don't know, but he's going to be my best friend. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it speaks to the, the importance of advocacy and why you need to engage. And it's something that you have done for a long time. It's something that you do uh, very well. I've, I've seen you when you get in front of a member of Congress or a U.S. Senator, and I can tell you this, it doesn't matter who you're in front of, you want to be able to tell your story about the plight of small business. And oftentimes it's, I've, I've never heard you talk selfishly about your own business. It's about the challenges that restaurants face and that small businesses face, and you want to be able to educate them. And thank you for for doing that. Well, I advocate for the violas of the world. I saw my mom struggle with two employees, five employees, and seven employees. So she was overdrawn two to three days a week, and she would have to take her lunch proceeds and run down to the Bank of San Antonio to cover uh, those those checks that were those basically hot checks. There wasn't enough money to cover them, but she, she covered them. And so... Um, that's who I advocate for. The, the, since 90% of restaurants are less than 50 employees, I'm not concerned with the Los Barrios family of restaurants. I'm concerned with the Viola Barrioses of the world. And that's a, a, a beautiful part of your family's history and your personal story. Louis Barrios, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Eddie. Beyond the Bite is produced by Aldrete Strategic Partners in San Antonio, Texas. Edited by Nick Chamberlain of Every Word Media. This episode is available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to be notified of new episodes, please like, share, and subscribe. Until next time, I'm Eddie Aldrete.